Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 425. This program is dedicated by Shashi Ben Abu in loving memory of her husband. Le'ilei Nishmas Rab Shimon Olav Asholem Ben Rab Osher Sheyichia. May you and your family be consoled and strengthened with all the keiches and blessings from God to get through this difficult time and only build very healthy and even stronger lives. And may the neshama of your dear husband continue to illuminate you, give you more strength, and bring blessings to your entire family, entire Klal Yisrael, entire world. So, as is our custom, we'll always begin with something that's timely, connected to the specific time. This week is the week of Pasha Teldis. This week is also Rosh Chodesh Kislev, the first day of the month of Kislev, and uh, some other timely matters that we shall discuss. Based on the Alter Rebbe's statement, to live with the times, which means, in the most powerful way, what means with the times? With the Torah that we live in that time, because the Torah gives us the soul and the essence of what is the real story behind the story. The newspapers can tell you about timely events, news on a superficial surface level. The Torah tells us the inner story. It's Alma. The Abishta looked into the Torah, and that's how he created the world. The Torah is the blueprint. You want to understand existence, you have to look at his blueprint. So with that, let us begin with uh, Pasha Teldes. But I'll do a little housekeeping first. And that is welcoming those that are here for the first time, those that have been with us for many years, those that are sporadically. And as you know, that you can submit any question you like, uncensored. Everything is acceptable, completely anonymously, at chassidahsupply.com. There's a forum there where you can submit your questions. You can also find all the previous programs, all the archives. Now we're talking about 424 weeks so we're deep in the ninth year of this uh, series, and it's only grown and expanded due to your questions, plus other resources that you can find at chassidahsupply.com. Just for the record, that's a sister website to meaningfullife.com, where there, I would, we call it more like the more universal application that doesn't really use so much the language of chassidahsupply.com, simply which would be prohibitive to some people due to language and due to context. But the ideas, of course, are the same. So we have these two websites, MeaningfulLife.com and ChassidahSupply.com. There you can also find ChassidahSupply.com, the essays that were submitted over the number of years that we did the essay contest, and also creative submissions to apply Chassidus to a contemporary or personal issue and challenge of our lives. Since I've been asked this question, will there be another essay contest in the future? Um, the answer is, please God, yes. It was very successful for different reasons because of its growth, actually. We chose to not do it in the last year, and we wanted to do it even bigger and better. So you'll hear about it. I'll keep you posted. With that, let us enter into the week of Parsha Teldus. So... It's the fifth parsha of the of the Sefer Bereshit. Bereshit Noach Lech Lech Vayerech Hayesoda. The sixth parsha, I should say, tell this. The sixth parsha. 
where it now tells us the story of Eliteldes Yitzchak, and this is the story of the children of Yitzchak and Rivka that would give, be, give birth to twins, Esav and Yaakov. Yaakov and Esav, Hamurim Baparsha, as Rashi says. That means Yaakov and Esav, as the Rebbe emphasizes, the way they're told in the Parsha, they're Torah people. As I mentioned, the blueprint, Yaakov and Esav are both Torah forces, archetypes. And both represent two different um, realities, two different conscious states of consciousness. As the Pesach itself says, to explain to Rivka why she was having such a difficult pregnancy, these two forces, there are two nations inside of you struggling for dominance. And they represent not just two brothers, they represent their progeny, their descendants, where Yaakov would be the father, the patriarch that would lead to all the Jews, the entire Jewish nation, and Esau, whose grandchild would be Remi, the Roman Western civilization, Christian civilization. And they would be at odds, when one would rise, the other would fall. And as such, Yaakov and Esau represent much more than just two individuals, they represent two forces. In Svarim, it talks about they also represent the two voices within us, the two forces within us, as the Alter Rebbe explains at length in Tanya, the divine soul and the animal soul. Both are divine creations. They're not man-made, but they're at war with each other. And the goal, of course, is that the divine soul dominate and ultimately not eliminate, but transform. Transform the animal soul as well. That both, both souls, both forces, should be driven toward the divine. So in essence, the story of Yaakov and Esav Hamurim Bapashan, this Parsha, is really the story that of each one of our lives. And it's interesting, the way Yaakov deals with Esav, first he buys the birthright, which is a very odd story. We'll talk about it some more as we go along. And then he deceives his father Yitzchak by dressing up like Esav at the behest and, with the, and, the, and, and the initiative of Rivka, to dress up like uh, Esau, to get the blessings, to steal the blessings. What kind of behavior is that? If he indeed deserved the birthright, then he should have gotten in a straightforward way. If he deserved the blessings in a straightforward way, why through this type of deception? The answer is explained in a beautiful way. And maybe this is the ultimate answer. There are many different answers given, but the one that really satisfies and you could say really explains the concept better than any other, is the story that the, the Moshe that the Baal Shem Tov gives actually for the idea why Chassidim say L'chaim. He gives a Moshe an example, an example for, of, of a king, an aging king who's ailing and realizes that his time will come and he wants his son to inherit his throne. And to do so, he realizes that his son, who grew up in the palace, was always spoiled in a certain way and did not yet earn his right to be a true leader. So the father comes up with an idea. He's going to send the son to a distant land in the kingdom where nobody knows him, where he won't be catered to, where he won't be protected, where he has to make it on his own. And then he'll learn the sensitivities necessary to be a true king. Of course, it's a sad day, the day that comes that he sends his son away. 
and he explains to his son the reason for it. But he says, remember, you're always going to be my son, you're always my son, and you're being groomed to be the new king. I will send you a letter from time to time to remind you who you are. Because the father anticipating that once he goes and time passes, he'll slowly forget who he was and he'll start assimilating his ways. And that's what happens. Sends him off to a distant land where no one recognizes him. And as the father promised, he sends him a letter several times a year. When the son receives the letter, the father, he wants to celebrate because he remembers. But what's, what happened? What's he going to do? He's going to tell the, his uh, neighbors, hey, I'm the, you're going to be your future king. They'll either think he's crazy or they'll be resentful. So he throws a party. Party, free meal, free drinks, free cocktails. Everyone celebrates because they're getting a beautiful meal. And meanwhile, he's celebrating with them for the real reason because he received this letter from his father reminding him of who he is. Says the Baal Shem Tov. That's the Moshe, the example. What's the moral? The king is God. The child is the soul. As long as the soul lives in heaven, heaven is a spiritual abode, spiritual haven, oasis, protected from all the challenges of life. To have, for a soul to earn its way and show what it's capable of, God says, I'll send it into a distant land, a land where the divine is concealed. This world. And the Nisham will be made to forget. The, Torah, the entire Torah is taught to the soul in its mother's womb, but then we're made to forget, consciously. But then we're sent reminders. Three times a year, Yom Tev, Pesach, Shavuos, every week, Ashabbos, other reminders. And when the Nisham gets the reminder, the Nisham wants to celebrate. The problem is the Nisham is living among aliens, foreigners who don't understand spiritual, what spirituality is, what the soul is, what God is. So God says, you know what? Throw a party. Shabbos meal, a yomtiv meal, dress up. And feed the body. Let the body and the animal soul celebrate because they're getting good food. And meanwhile, the neshama can celebrate because it's a divine message. A divine revelation has entered existence. So the concept is that in order to transform the physical world, our body and our animal soul, you have to fool it. But not fooling in a bad way. It's similar to when you have to teach a child an idea and they don't understand the idea. You give them an example. You dress it up in a garment that's appropriate to them. What garment does the body understand? Does Esav understand? Representing the body and the animal soul. A good lentil soup. And that's why Yaakov dressed up in garments like Esav. He's dressing up in garments. But the truth is, it's Yaakov. You die, you die, Esav. But kel kel Yaakov. It's the voice of Yaakov. Because that's the only way to get those blessings. So the blessings are actually meant for the body. Because there's a deep power that lies in this material world. But Esav on his own, without the guidance of the soul, will not know how to harness it. That's why the end, as Rashi says in Pasha Vayishlach, when they reconcile, so the end there will be a reconciliation of soul, body and soul. So even though the body carries a power, as Chassidus says, even deeper, the Yesha Nivra has something from the Yesha Miti, from the divine essence itself, but it's the soul that has to guide and reveal it. You need the Torah, Yaakov, Ishtom, Yeshev Aholim, to guide the Ishmael Choma, the warrior, Yehid Tzayid, 
the warrior and the hunter, that is Esau. And that's why it comes in this indirect way. Because in this material world, a body does not understand the animal soul on its own, what the value of spirituality is. But you explain that value also has material value, then it understands. There's much more to be said on the topic, but it's a tremendous lesson in life that we are here sent to this world not to live ascetically, separate ourselves, engage with the material world, engage with your body. We're supposed to eat and sleep and drink. And Shabbos is a mitzvah, Enoch Shabbos, same thing on Yom Tov. But not to indulge, it's to elevate, it's to explain godliness even in the terms of language of the body and of the animal soul. That's the essential story of Teldus, Yaakov Esav. And it's really the story of also the Jewish people and all the nations of the world. The Jewish people represent, God chose them, to bring the Torah and to bring to be living witnesses of what godliness is in the world. Not to fight the nations, but to teach it to them. But there's resistance. Just as Avram Avinu had resistance, a material world resists spirituality, resists higher values. When a person is consumed with self-interest, they will resist and go to war against selflessness. But the goal is to bring the two together, and that's the story of history. And ultimately, when Yaakov reconciles with Esau, first he thinks that Esau is ready to go and march to Mashiach, then he realizes he's not. And ultimately, and now we're at that threshold, the Rebbe in a famous Sikh of Ayesh of Tafshinun Beis explains that today we're ready to transform the Western world of Esau and to join Yaakov in a fusion of body and spirit, of matter and energy, a total fusion, seamless fusion, with the Gula Hamitis Vashleim. And on a personal note, it means, on a personal level, it means each of us applying the Torah values not just to live spiritually, but to permeate our material lives. You have money, you turn it into tzedakah. You use your hand to give charity. You take everything in the material world and we refine it. That's the process of Yaakov refining Esau. And together they need each other and they complement each other as twins. Question, and Pasha tells us, what can we learn from Isaac and Rebekah to ensure that God blesses us with children? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, my wife and I are an older couple and have not been able to have children yet. Last year, when it came to Pasha tells us, we read about the difficulties Yitzchak and Rivka had having children and that they resolved the problem by davening together in opposite corners of the room. I told my wife, the Torah is clearly telling us what we should do. It says, The actions of our patriarchs are a sign, a directive, direction to their children. So we should do what Rivka Yitzhak did. It couldn't be spelled out more clearly. So we did it. First, we both gave tzedakah, charity. Then we prayed in opposite corners of the room. But unfortunately, a year has passed and we're, and we're up to Pasha Teldus again and we haven't had children yet. It's even more hurtful and upsetting to us because we did word for word what the Torah told us to do. We're not ever going to give up hope. We'll be successful by any means necessary and right away without any obstacles. So please advise us 
How we can build upon and add to what we did last year in order that it should be Hashem's will that we see and that we see revealed blessings for healthy children. Thank you. Well, thank you, first of all. What shall I say? Very touching. But most importantly, we also, myself included, pray for you. I have no doubt that your prayers were heard last year. We don't always know Hashem's mysterious ways. So do, exactly as you write, do not give up. Pray even more this year. And you don't have to only pray in the week of Pasha tell us. You can pray all the time. And remember, one of the reasons that Rivka was barren, that basically, is because Hashem is, has a desire to hear the prayers of his children, of his tzaddikim and tzaddikonis. So it's not a, uh, a curse, it's actually a blessing. And you see, they had children. So I will say to you is continue doing what you're doing. Increase even more. And everything possible you can make to make a keli. You know, I've heard the Rebbe write to different people, different things you can do, whether it's helping, giving some tzedakah for a children's mice the organization, whether it's helping a summer camp. Anything that serves children is a keli for bringing blessings to children, for children. And I have no doubt when you do it with a sincerity as you describe, Hashem will bless you, and may we all merit to see it. And please share with me the good news, I can share it with the public, that you are finally blessed with a healthy child. In a good and auspicious hour. Okay. Next question. Being that we're talking about Yaakov and Esau, which in a sense are the archetypes of the animal soul, divine soul, I wouldn't call it good and evil, but it's definitely the two directions that we have options to go because Esau, though he was given the power of being a warrior in the material world, did not have to use it in a negative way. He ultimately went the wrong direction. But he too would be transformed. Here's a question that touches the concept of good and evil. Why do we assume that Hashem is only capable of doing good? If we are created in God's image and have His attributes, and we have a Yetzirah, an evil inclination, maybe Hashem also struggles with some sort of Yetzirah. What what evidence is there to say God is perfect and not capable of doing bad on purpose or by mistake? An interesting question. I mean, the phraseology could maybe be somewhat edited. And you could add to it, we just spoke about Yaakov and Esau, and these are two creatures, two children, that were created by God. Yaakov, Esau, Amur, and Bapasha. And yet Esau is, is drawn to and attracted to, even in the womb of Rivka, to the wrong thing, to pagan, to idolatry. Which goes to the big question, if God is purely good, how did it create? How is there evil in this world? Now the issue of the Tzalem Elikim, the creating the divine image, obviously is referring to Nefesh Elikis. It doesn't say anywhere that the Yetzirah is created in the divine image. And yet, we know in Tanya, he does say that the Nefesh Abamis also has ten faculties. Zelu Umar Zeh Osa Lekim. God created the two 
the parallel worlds, mirror image, and the ten faculties we learned earlier in Tanya, Nishtal Shulmehen, are rooted in the ten spheres. So ultimately, the ten faculties of the animal soul are also come from a divine source. So in that sense, it's correct that there is some manifestation. But let's explain this. First of all, basic principle. God is beyond structure and beyond definitions. Even the definition of good and evil is not really accurately portrayed, because that's you're talking about here, God in some form of definition. When you talk about built in Mitzvah Nimtzah, where God is beyond definitions, even though he didn't even create the concept of good. And yet, when he creates, so we say he's etzim atev v'teva atev lehetiv. But it doesn't say that God's defined by goodness. God is beyond everything. Then, when he creates, think of how Chassidus explains the concept of oir. Oir is an example used, Chassidus, reflection, light. Reflects its source. It has nothing but its source. So the question now is this. Does oir, being that it's exact replica, so to speak, and reflects its source, is oir the source? The answer is no. It comes from the source. And God is not defined by light. Not like the sun. The sun is defined by being a source of light. It's a luminary. God created the luminary to give off light. To illuminate the world. To say that God is a moir, this explains absolutely not. He's beyond that. Even light, even the source of light. We're not even talking darkness. And loyze iker elakush shenisavim menoir, an expression of Chassidus. And it's not the primary thing of godliness that oir should come from him. But once he chooses to express himself in what we call the world of expression, mitzias nimtza, it looks like oir. It's going to be nothing but godliness. And that's why oir me'enam oir, the oir reflects God. So that's after the fact. And then the oir does carry the godly message and carries the godly personality. But remember, the divine is higher than all forms of personality. So the same thing is with goodness, which is compared to Eir. Eir and Choshech. It says, the says, But there's a level that precedes Sadikim and precedes the opposite of that. But then when he chooses, what he's going to choose, he's going to choose a goodness is a natural expression of the divine, even though the divine is beyond it. Now, why is this so relevant? That's what allows also the opposite. Once you create light, a definition of light, then by definition it means it's the absence of something, is the opposite of the opposite of light. Just like when you, once you have bitter, you have sweet. Once you have sweet, you have bitter. Once you have light, you have darkness. So that's how it is in the root. In other words, there's the divine revelation and there's the power of the divine not to reveal. Concealment. That ultimately will evolve into a tzimtzum that conceals. And that's still not evil. That allows space for independent consciousness, which in turn will allow space for choice. For a choice for somebody saying, hey, maybe God is not right here. I can't see God. And they will then, with their free will, choose, God forbid, opposite of what God wants. So evil is not a creation of God, it's a creation of a human being misunderstanding the concealment rooted in God's ability to not radiate because he's not defined by illumination, by light.
I know I went to a deeper topic here, Apichsidus, but that's the essential concept here. So once you know that, then it comes back to then, then we say etzimatev, God is etzimatev, meaning once he's talking about the world of good, who is the ultimate good, it's going to be God. And tevatev lehetev is to do good. And that's why we say, we assume that Hashem is only capable of doing good. Even though the fact is we see a world where there are things that are not always good. Because it's capable of not being good because God is not defined by goodness. But at the end of the day, anything not good is ultimately because when you talk in the world of Giluim, it's going to only be goodness. So essentially you can say we have the Yetzirah, the yes comes from God. God created the animal soul. With a reason, however. Not to follow it, but not to follow it. As the Alter Rebbe brings the end of chapter 9, the Moshul from the Zayar, of the Zayna, of the king who hires someone to tempt his son. Similar to the example I gave before, he sends the son to a distant land. And he's tempted. But the intention of the one that's tempted, the temptress, is not that he should listen. So he should not listen. That's why it says, Sotan L'Shem Shemayim Niskav. The Sotan. Yes, the avenging angel, the Sotan. It's intentional as Hashem Shemayim. It doesn't even want to do the job. God says you need to do the job to tempt and challenge and prosecute. So, okay, you want me to do the job, I'll do it. But it's something I hate. I'm doing against what I really want. But God says that's what I need. I need you to tempt. Because not because I want someone to listen to you. I want them not to listen to you. I want to listen to them the strengths and their potential to overcome the obstacle and the challenge. That's ultimately why there's the potential for the negative. Why there was a symptom in the first place. To allow that option so we should overcome it and not be deceived by it. So in other words, evil is essentially the absence or the misunderstanding of the concealment of the divine. When the whole purpose is God hiding like the father that hides from his child in order to elicit his ingenuity to find the father. And the ultimate, and the ultimate good is not just revealed good, but even in a situation where there's a potential of the opposite, to turn that also into good. As we discussed. Next question. What was Esau thinking when he sold his birthright for what? For lentil soup? So now we talk from Esau's perspective. Are we supposed to believe that Esau was an idiot and didn't understand the true value of the birthright and traded it for lentil soup? Or was it just really amazing lentil soup, even better than they make at Mormostines, and he couldn't resist? We see afterward that Esau had remorse about selling it and was very angry at Yaakov. So what was Esau thinking? How could he make such a big mistake? And since the Torah is telling us the story, there's a lesson here for us. What can we do in these situations not to make the same mistakes Esau made? So let's go back to the analogy that I elaborated on before. Esau did not choose to be born a warrior-like personality. He was born red with hair. He was the warrior. He had the choice how he's going to use that strength, that aggression. He could have sublimated it and elevated it. But just like the physical body was not chosen, did not choose to be a physical body that's drawn and attracted to physical things. Food, drink, lentil soup, good food, other desires. That's how it was created. 
The soul by nature is created to, to pursue and drawn to spiritual things, to divine purpose, to transcendence. They're two different realities. And by nature there, now is the process of the work and the battle, who's going to prevail? So the fact that he was drawn to lentil soup was not the soup. It meant materialism was more powerful for him than the spiritual. He, of course, understood. He was not a, not a fool at all. But the moment he came from the field, he was hungry. Don't simplify that. It's essentially the tug of materialism, the tug of money, of power, of influence. You see this intelligent people. And they'll give up, the Gemara says, they'll give up Chayi Elam for Chayi Shah. Permanent life for, for a temporary, for instant gratification. Does that make sense? Doesn't make sense. But a person will never do a sin unless there's a moment of insanity. No healthy person would put their hand in fire. Every person would seek the things that give you most life and nourishment and sustenance. And yet, we do put our hand in fire because we don't know it's fire or we don't see its effect when we indulge in materialism. Esav epitomized that. The birthright is a thing, a spiritual thing. Yes, very valuable. We do it all the time. You could ask Esav was a higher person because he was son of Yitzchak and Rivka. But still, to show you the power of the animal soul, to show you the power of materialism. And therefore, the lesson for us is also very clear. That every time you're tempted, no. That when you're drawn to a physical material indulgence, like he says in Tanya, just to indulge for your own purposes, not L'Shem Shemayim, eating for the sake of heaven, to use the strength to learn Torah, to daven, to do a mitzvah, that's exactly the same temptation that they have succumbed to. And what we learn from that is we should not succumb. So that's the most immediate lesson and explanation of this uh, story. Okay, Pasha tells us. Let's now move <coughs> to Chesidus applied to Rosh Kislev. This week will be Rosh Chedesh. Kislev. Every Rosh Chedesh, of course, is a powerful day. A new moon, a new energy, the energy of Kislev. Especially Kislev has, at the end of the month, Hanukkah. And throughout the month, Chesidus holidays, Tes Kislev, Yud Kislev, Yudalad Kislev, Tes Yud Kislev is respectively the birthday and yard side of the Rebbe, Rash, Rebbe Mar, the Mitle Rebbe, Yud Kislev, the Chagagul of the Mitle Rebbe, Yudalad Kislev, the anniversary of the Rebbe and the Rebbe's marriage in Tafresh Peites, and Yud Tes Kislev, Chagagul, Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus. So in the year Tov Shalamet Ches, the year was 1977, end of 77, after the Rebbe suffered a heart attack on the night of Shemini Atzeres. And then the Rebbe remained in his room until when? That was the day the Rebbe chose to go back home. So it was a big simcha because it's like when a person who's not well comes back to their health, you make begoymel and there's other things that you celebrate like a, a type of suddhas heidah. And I remember it vividly like today, that weekend, and the Rebbe went home to Shredish Kislev that night. The Fabrengen that went on in New York at Crown Heights in 770 was <laughs> impossible to describe. Shredish Kislev. Now, why the Rebbe chose that day? I think the Rebbe said it, but clearly it was quite obvious because Kislev is a Shredish Agaula. And a Shredish, like Rosh Hashanah, 
like a reish that encompasses the whole month. So the Shchedish Kislev encompasses all the power of that month, transforming darkness to light, which is the story of Yutas Kislev, the story of Hanukkah. And personally in the Rebbe, as a Neshama Klolis, as a general soul, also from his darkness of that setback that turned into something far more powerful as the Rebbe doubled and tripled his work and his output and his teachings and his fabringens following that Tov Shalom uh, Ches that year 1977-78 and the years that followed. So it's something to, uh, to celebrate every year. The miracles that happened then and to teach us the same thing, the idea that even when there may be a, on the surface a setback, like we said, a form of darkness, but darkness can always be a springboard, as should be. And its real power and its real purpose is to be a springboard to catapult us to new levels. As the Rebbe told the doctors, what draws out the blood? The Rebbe was learning lessons from the things that he was doing at the time. Is it the needle or is it the vacuum of the needle that draws blood? Of course, it's the vacuum. So a vacuum and emptiness, a void, which is like a darkness, has the power. When you will be missing in the seat, you won't be there. That will remind us of you. You will be remembered. So a vacuum, a darkness, that symptom, though it's a concealment, it actually reveals a deeper dimension that God is not bound by light. That he has the power of restraint. What's stronger, the power to reveal or the power to hold back? See, a wise person has something to say. It takes more energy to withhold and restrain than to extend. And that's the power that was revealed. So the Shechei Kislev is that power for each one in our own lives. Which is also why during this time became, in the years that followed, the Kinnus HaShluchim, the International Conference of Shluchim from all over the world, being scheduled around Shechei Kislev. So it brings me to that question. So now, this weekend, just coming, this weekend literally, tonight, the banquet is a weekend of five days when shluchim, thousands of shluchim from all over the world come into the international conference of shluchim. So someone asked, was the kinus the Rebbe's idea or did someone suggest it to the Rebbe and he approved the idea? That was the Rebbe's idea. First the Rebbe suggested it for the shluchim in Eretz Yisrael. That was already Tavshim Memalaf, I believe, or Membeis. 1981-82. And they did it around Chof Cheshven time. Chof of time, sorry. Chof of in the summer. Shabbos Pashas Ekev, Tov Shemem Gimel, that began speaking about Yerushalayim is now happening in Israel, a kinus ha-shluchim of the shluchim in Israel. And the Rebbe said, Halavai, it should be done here as well. And that became the first time the Rebbe said that, and then plans began to be made. And by the next year, in Tov Shemem Dalet, Kislev time, Rishchidosh Kislev time was the first Kinnus HaShlochim. So we're talking about 39 years ago. From Memdalet, and now we are in Pei Gimel. And then it only grew year by year. In the year Mem Tavshim Mem Zayin, the Rebbe said it should become an international conference, not just of American Shluchim, but from all over the world. And hence that, that then exploded even further. And ever since, only growing and growing, and you see the unbelievable power, you see the unbelievable gathering. The Rebbe every year participated. By beginning the Kinnus, he would say, at the Fabring and Shabbos, sometimes it's Shabbos Pasha Chayi sometimes Shabbos Pasha Teldas. 
and would always speak about shlichus. I had discuss to write many of those shlichus. And all the years. And even earlier, a Kuntus Ashlichus came out. There was a lot to say about this. But being that we're now celebrating this Kinnus Ashlichim, I thought it appropriate to mention that. And again, the lesson being that Shluchim all over the world, Shluchis have a Kinnus Ashlichus, now we also have later, Chav Beishvat time all over the world, are transforming the darkness, the Esau of the world being transformed by Yaakov to join both together, Yaakov, Esau, Amur, and Beparsha. And one of the central themes was always that Chayesar is the first shlichus that we find when Eliezer, the Eved Avram, the servant of Avram, is sent on shlichus to go find a shidduch for Rivka and for Yitzchok, and the shidduch of Yitzchok and Rivka. And it told us is also the story of Shlichus. It leads also to the Shlichus of uh, the Neshama coming down to the body. And the Rebbe connected both of them to bringing birth, told us, offspring. And of course, the Parshas that follow told us, Vayetze, Vayishlach. Vayishlach literally means Shlichus. And Vayetze, Yaakov going out to find his Shidduch and building his family. All part of this central theme. Okay. Let's move to another topic. Since it's the year of Hakel, the Rebbe encouraged that wherever possible, not just during the month of Tishrei, during Chesukas, but the entire year, wherever possible, to create gatherings. And we've talked about that a few weeks ago, but it's a good time to remind us because it's throughout the year. And the Rebbe meant it across the board in families, in communities, in offices. Wherever you can make an hakel of anoshim, noshim v'taf, and speak some divrei teirah, with the goal of to bring people to reverence and love of God that will last kol hayomim all the years, all the days, and all the years. So, someone asks the question in that context: Is, dear Rabbi Jacobson, if I drive with my wife to her parents' house to have a Thanksgiving dinner with extended family because it's a gathering, is it automatically considered? A hakel gathering, or do we need to do something at the dinner in the realm of Torah and mitzvahs to make it into a hakel gathering? Okay, good question. So first of all, with hakel, we said that the key is not just gathering, it's also the melech would read from the parshas in order to awaken a yiliris Hashem alekecha. Liris Hashem alekecha. To have reverence and love of God and awe of God. So hakel technically is not just coming together, it's also having that type of inspiration. But since you're asking the question, let me, let me give it a little more context. The Rebbe would often speak about by Fabrengen, he says when 10 Jews come together, even if they're not learning Torah Mitzvahs, the Alter Rebbe writes in the Geras HaKedosh, Shechina Shrui they have the Shechina that rests. How much more so when they do Torah Mitzvahs? So there's always a power of a hakel when people come together and sit in unity. However, how much more so with Torah Mitzvahs? With Hakel, I would say, it's probably necessary to have Torah Mitzvahs. The truth is, it's always necessary. It says when you're eating at a table, very strong words, if you don't say Divrei Torah, and a table should be elevated through saying Divrei Torah. The bottom line is, yes, I would say I strongly encourage that, the Hakel, as much as possible. And it can be done in a very pleasant way, if not everyone is receptive and they know what Torah is, explain what it is. But in an inspiring way, saying inspiring words, encouraging words, Talk about God, talk about purpose, talk about 
our, our role, morality, ethics, and so on. I'm just covering whatever type of family this may be, so everyone should be able to be part of it. The worst thing you want to do is start speaking ideas that nobody knows what you're talking about. So you want to make sure it's conducive to the people that gather together in this hakim. Okay. So these are different questions that came up. Some are, ty- are, as I said, timely. Here's another one. Unrelated to the previous. A few days ago, began the new cycle of Talmud Yerushalmi. So there's like the Dafayemi learning, people learn, and they divided Talmud Yerushalmi. So someone's asking, should I start learning Gemara Yerushalmi with a new cycle, which actually began on November 14th. So we're talking about last week. What was, what was the Rebbe's opinion, and did the Rebbe learn Yerushalmi? So this, I believe, was established by the Gedder Rebbe in a previous generation. And the Rebbe made mention of it for sure when he, when he, uh, did, when he came out with learning Rambam, Pesach, Tov Shemem Dalad, 1984. As well, same year that when the Kinnus Hashluchim, the first year of the Kinnus Hashluchim. And uh, the Rebbe made mention of it. I can't tell you if the Rebbe followed the Talmud Yerushalmi every day. It's very possible he did, I don't know. But learning Torah is always a good thing. If it's another way of motivating someone, motivating someone to learn every day, by all means. I mean, obviously, Rambam is something we heard from the Rebbe himself, so it's, in a sense, closer in that way. But Torah is Torah. All Torah. Some people learn Bavli, Yerushalmi, and Ram. So that would be what I've said. I mean, if anybody has information, maybe there's something I have not seen, a letter or an answer, where the Rebbe makes more reference to it, please share it with me and I will share it, please God, in a future program. Okay. Here's another question that came in just this week, and the reason I'm, I'm reading it is actually because it's something I've been talking about in certain previous classes, so I thought it may be fitting to discuss it as well. And that is, Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. This doesn't have to be anonymous, but it's a question that my sweet seven-year-old keeps asking, and I want to make sure I have the right words to answer. His question is, who created Hashem? I answer him by saying that no one did. Hashem was always here, etc. But, but if there's more to it, that would be appropriate. That would be appropriate to answer him. I would love some insight. Thank you for all that you do for Klal Yisrael. So this is a common question. Not that this seven-year-old is, I mean, is asking it from that perspective. This is a common question you hear from atheists, and they say it with such glibness and, and pride, as if they're like so brilliant. Like when you say nothing can create itself. Ain't over a building can't build itself, a book can't write itself, a piece of music can't compose itself. So why, when you look at this beautiful universe, do you think that it created itself? You have to, so just as a book dictates, there's an author, the world, which is far more beautiful and far more elaborate than any book or poem or, or music or, or architecture, there's a creator. So of course the question comes, okay, if nothing can create itself, so God, who created God? The answer is both obvious and also very profound. Obvious is, if God is to mean anything, it's not just replacing and saying, okay, there's an author of a book, but the author also didn't create himself because before him he had parents. Just like when you see a tree, the tree came from a seed that came from a previous tree, and you go back to the first tree, and then you have to ask who created the first tree. 
So it's not just replacing. If you really mean God, so you're just not talking about just a, you're not just talking about a first cause, you're talking about a different reality that's not subject to that law that nothing can create itself. So you'll say, one second, you just said nothing can create itself. A creation can't create itself. That's what compels us to say there must be something that's not in the same parameters and does not follow the same guidelines that what we call existence. And that's why we have the expression, I mentioned it earlier, it comes from the Rambam, that God, you can't call him an existence because then he's an existence like any, the existence of a table that occupies space and time or even the existence of an idea may not be physical time, conceptual space and time. So he uses the expression, mitzias built in mitzias nimtza. It's an existence, but it's a non-existential existence. Essentially, it's saying you cannot say God exists like everything exists. You can't say God doesn't exist, so you say God does not not exist. It's like saying, chakim You can't say that he has wisdom like we have wisdom. You can't also say he doesn't have wisdom. So you say he has a wisdom, but not a knowable wisdom, not a wisdom that we know. So it's like basically saying it's not not wisdom. So it's a different type of reality. And you could, can you envision it? Can you imagine it? You could extrapolate and say there's a reality in the words of the Alter Rebbe Nagaris Akedah, which I believe is original Alter Rebbe words, Mitziyusei Matzmusei. His existence, Mitziyus, comes from within himself. Nothing exists like that. Nothing. We, the Yesh, as the Alter Rebbe explains in the Geras Akedah we feel that we're self-contained, like we don't have a source. But we indeed, we do have one. But who really has no source? Only is something that is such a reality, a reality that dictates itself because it's absolute truth. So what I would explain is that's exactly the meaning of God. We're talking about something that's not creatable. Something that is real because it's real. It's not real because it exists. It's real because it's real and therefore it exists. Everything else is real because it exists. If this table was not here, nobody would say it must exist. Every tree in the forest must exist. It exists. Once it's there, it's there. And we can explain its, its, its purpose, its role. With Atzmus, with God, it's not that way. That's what I would add. How to explain this to a child? We have to find the right words. But I think it's also an opportunity. These type of questions are a tremendous opportunity to explain that God is a different type of reality than ours. It's not like our type of reality. Yes, there is an element of God being the first cause. He drives everything. But there's another element. It's not just the driver of everything. Like I said before, it's not the primary thing of God is to create light or to create worlds. He's also a creator. And it's actually maybe the smallest thing that he is. I'm not saying the smallest, but it's only one detail. There's so much that we don't know. And that's what makes God God. That's why it's so important to understand and appreciate that God is not you. And it's, not, it's not me. It's not on our terms. It's not even negating our terms. It negates even the negation. You call Shlilis... Just he is what he is. In the words of the Apostle. Okay.
Let's do a little follow-up. A little follow-up. And hopefully I can cover some more ground. Good. In last week's episode, regarding the writer's question of the meaning of the acronym of the Rashab's name, if it has specific meaning. So someone asked about the birthday of the Rebbe Rashab. We say, Rashab, Rashab. So I explained that's the acronym of Rab Shalom Dev Ber, which is the name of the Rebbe Rashab, and said, if anybody has more information, please share it. So here someone did share. Samach Sadiq said about the naming by his bris, Rashab acronym is the letters of Bosar. So Rashab is Bosar. Reverse the letters, Reish Shin Beis. Also the letters uh, Bosar. Which means meat or flesh. And also shever. Another way of another letter, shin bezrei, shever, broken. To break the physicality of the body. And the person gave me a source that it's read in a YouTube program. Let me see here, the birth of the Rebbe Rashab. So I didn't look up the source, but I do have the link to the YouTube. If anybody wants it, just send us an email on the forum at chsidasupply.com, but give us your email address. If you don't give it to us, we have no way of contacting you. And we'll send you the link for more information. And that taka reminds me now that I think about it, there is sikhs about it, where the Rebbe speaks, Mesurbul Babosar. Because the name Sholem Ber, Ber, the Gemara says about a bear, and Doiv Ber, in Hebrew and in Yiddish, a bear is Mesurbul Babosar. He's thick with flesh. And that represents the material of the world. But the goal is, is to transform it. Here he says, Shever, to break, first of all, its material power, but then to transform it. And when you transform Bosar, it's like the transformation of Esav, which is even greater, because you're taking the Yesha Nivra, which is rooted in the Yesha Amiti, and reveals a dimension that Oyer and Giluim and the Neshama can never reveal. So that brings it all together. Okay. Thank you for that. Follow up on the nose ring question. We talked about nose rings that uh, some women wore in the time of the Bible. Regarding the question about a nose ring, wondering why Rabbi Jacobson didn't mention the idea of Das Yehudis. To the best of my knowledge, and perhaps Rabbi Jacobson can clarify, the idea is that the women in the community who are of Rebetzin-like status determine what behavior and dress are appropriate. Their consensus has the status of Allah. I don't know if the Rebbe specifically brought, wrote spoke about Das Yehudis anyway, but from what I know, it is an aspect of Allah. Additionally, the Rebbe guided Chabad schools who asked what their Tzniya standard should be, and the Rebbe responded, I don't know if this is accurate, so I'll just read what the person is writing. I don't think it's accurate, to be honest. The Rebbe responded like Beis Yaakov. As far as I understand in these circles, in those circles, nose rings are not considered appropriate today, and perhaps this is the logic behind following with regards to determining the standards of dress, as this would be a practical application of Das Yehudis. The reason I'm questioning it, I mean, and why is Beis Rivka less than Beis Yaakov? I mean, the Rebbe has to refer to them. We have a Mercedes that goes back generations. So my understanding is that the Rebbe has a very different way of looking at it. When I say not necessarily different standards, but meaning that we don't have to go look at other communities for Tzniya standards. But since we're already on the topic, if anyone has more information, please share it. I'll definitely talk about it in a follow-up to this, because I'm sure I'll get many questions on this issue itself. 
But let's not digress. That's a, a, a certain tangent, uh, important, but the tangential issue we're talking about Tas Yehudis. Was Avram in a... Okay, that's it. So thank you for that. I have nothing more to comment. I mean, I didn't mention it because um, the fact is it's just not the custom today. And, and that's that. Not everything that was done, as I said, all the garments that we wore in the time of the Bible, the time of Moshe and other times, necessarily doesn't say it's a mitzvah to wear these things. Things that it says a mitzvah to wear, the Kovadil, the Shepherdus, the Big Day Kohuna, the time of the Beis Amidus is one thing. But the rest is pretty optional, as long as it's Alpi Alocha and it's Nias and Modest and so on. Another follow-up, was Avram inappropriate for not telling Sarah that he was instructed to sacrifice Yitzchok? Because we know that later, when Sarah heard about it, there are two opinions in Medr, she passed away. Either because she heard about the Akedah itself, or she heard that he survived, which would have been the great Simcha. Either way, that sudden news caused her to pass away. It says in Medrash. So clearly Avram does not, not tell her. If we want to assume that Avram kept it from her because she would have been upset or because she would have tried to stop him, how can we say this if we believe just as Avram was a tzaddik, his wife Sarah, who is his equal partner in a tzaddikis, why would she be upset? Sarah should have had the same reaction Avram had, which is, if this is what God commands, I will wake up extra early in the morning to do it right away. Are only the Ovis considered a Markova, but not the Imayas? So, I do have a vague recollection that this is discussed somewhere. I can't remember where. So I will look it up, and I throw it out as well to anyone listening, perhaps you know. But what comes to mind is Avram Avinu, when he was told this, he obviously immediately listened, but Zidizus, Speedily. He didn't procrastinate in any way. But he also understood that this was Hashem. And though he may not have known what the end of the story would be, but he knew clearly this has to be righteous. But it's his Nisayan. He knew he's being tested. It's not Sarah's Nisayan. So does he have to share it with her? What would happen? What happened? If Hashem wanted him to tell Sarah, he would have told him, tell Sarah. That would be the most obvious. I don't think it's about sparing her the pain because that was not the issue. The issue is, you're, you're given a shlichus, go do your shlichus. Hashem did not say bring Sarah into it. Why? Whatever reason. We'll talk about that shortly. As far as Merkava, no. The Ovis and Imois, even though it says Ovis Heinehena Merkava, but the Imois is the same idea. Rochel is compared to Malchus. All the Imois have their but it's interesting discussion. Why is it not emphasized? But I would say it's the same idea of the, of the Merkava. So we're not talking about because she was weaker than Sarah. In many ways, she was stronger. She was a greater prophetess. Avram was told to listen to her. But that would be the Balbatisha answer I would give. So now the question that follows that, why did God test Avram with 10 tests but zero tests for Sarah? It seems unfair that Sarah got a free pass. How could we know that she was completely devoted to Hashem and worthy of being our matriarch? Is that your problem? That you're wondering whether she's worthy of being our matriarch? If Hashem wants her to be our matriarch, she's our matriarch, whether there's tests or not. That's just my first uh, knee-jerk reaction to your comment. This is, if God, God knows what he's doing. So you could answer this two ways. Either you could say, very, like we say often, that women just have natural amuna, and it doesn't need to be tested, just like a man has to be told the mitzvah pruravu, or other things. There's different type of challenges. And a woman just is natural, and Hashem knew that. 
Like when it came to Yishmol, she knew that was time to send him away. Avram had to be told. That's one way of explaining it. Another way of explaining it is that the Nisanus went for both of them. They were together. Even though the actual Nisanus were in most cases, if I recall them all, were all around Avram himself, like Lech Lecha or Akedah, or being thrown into the fire. But the fact of the matter is, a husband and wife are one, just like when a husband makes Kiddush, she's Yetzir's wife, and a wife lights candles, she's Yetzir's husband. So the same idea could be applied here as well. And finally, we could also explain that maybe Avram was specifically the one that needed the testing, in addition to the first reason I gave. That for whatever reason, it was he that needed to go through these challenges. And therefore, he was given those tests. But regardless, this is not in any way saying that Sarah is less worthy, God forbid. Because if God needed the test, he would have sent the test to Sarah as well. Okay, another follow-up. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, on your Sunday podcast, you said that Avram was not wrong for turning away from Hashem to greet the three guests because he wasn't turning away from Hashem, but he was turning to a deeper dimension of Hashem as he works through people. And he was doing what Hashem wanted and emulating Hashem by expressing kindness to others. If that's the case, why don't we want to grant Malki Tzaddik the same benefits and say when he blessed Avram first and Hashem second, who's really blessing a deeper dimension of Hashem as he works through people, and Kalva Chemer, it was to Avram, who may have been the first person to truly exude Hashem's attributes of kindness. So Malki Tzaddik was doing kindness by blessing Avram first. So why do we consider that Mal- what Malki Tzaddik did as a mistake, but what Avram did, the exact same thing, we find ways to say that what he did was the correct thing. Well, this is already three weeks that we're dealing with this. I mean, it sounds a little to me like you just, I don't know what, what, what axe is there to grind here exactly. The point of the matter is that's what the Tatus says. So find you find an explanation. I gave the best explanations I can give. I'm trying to explain. We're here to explain what the Tatus says, not what I'm saying. The Tatus criticizes Malkit Sadiq, and with Avram is the opposite. You want Dafka to force explanation? I can give you explanations. We learn from Avram that So from that we know that it's a positive. Malkit said that you don't learn that. Now why? Maybe the Torah knew that Malkit said this Kavona was not 100% and wanted to set the precedent, as I said in the first time I spoke about it, that you have to remember God first. Once that's established... Then, a person like Avram, who was a far greater than Malkit Sadiq, a Makova Mamish, when he comes and does something, you can rest assured. So just because two people do the same thing doesn't mean it's the same value. Yes, I would give Avram more the benefit of the doubt than maybe another person. And I think you should do the same, whoever's writing this question. Okay. And you need both lessons, and that's the bottom line. Why are almost all of the great stories about Avram only in the Medrash? like going into the fire, his greeting of all the guests, of all of the guests, and other kindness stories, whereas all the seemingly trivial stories are explicit in the Torah, like his interactions with Fareh, Loit, and his wars, etc. Shouldn't the more important stories be more explicit, and the trivial ones be in the Medrash? We are not ones that determine what's trivial or what's not. The Torah determines that. So there's nothing trivial in Torah Shabbik Let's make this very clear. Even though to you it may appear that way, so you learn deeper, learn more. Rashi, for example, touches upon this. He asked the question, why 
when it comes to Eliezer being sent to go find a bride for Yitzchak, the story is repeated three times. And other things, just a few words. He says, that the sicha of Avdei Oves, their, their so-called um, pedestrian language of the servants of the patriarchs are greater than the Torah of their children, of the Oves, of the children of the Oves. So there's many explanations. Chassidus explains because the Torah is bringing it down to the level of Avdei Oves and Sichosan and transforming it, the beautiful sicha in Tov Shilamet Chestake in the weeks after the Rebbe had the heart attack, so Chayi Soda, Mechoy Shabbos Chayi Soda, close to the Shredish Kissel, the Rebbe speaks about it at length, Tov Shalom and edited it. You can find it in the Yisofas, the, the editions of the Kutasikas, volume 20. Explanation of that. And you can ask this question about anything. Why something's in Tereh Shabbat and much of it in Tereh Shabbat Why not put a little more here? In every place there's an explanation. The bottom line in Tereh Shabbat is the key blueprint, the written blueprint key points, but very much concentrated and very brief. And Tereh Shabbat Peh, it's elaborated. So that which we need to know in the brief is told in Tereh Shabbat but Tereh Bepidushanit, now they go hand in hand. They're not two separate Tereh, God forbid. So that which we need to know, as I said, in Tereh Shabbat is written there, that's like Tereh Vatsilus. And then as it comes in Tebri, Yitzirah the Tereh Shabbat Peh, that's where we get the details. Which is common, because it's a common thing, just like in many areas. We start off a Mishnah, then the Gemara. You say, why isn't everything said in the Mishnah? Because the Mishnah has it in a concentrated form, and then you develop it. And again, nothing is trivial. Okay. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. A good vach to you and yours. I just listened to your Sunday at 3 program. This is another program I do every Sunday at 3 p.m., New York time which is called Meaningful Live. And lately I've been doing something called Biblical Events Decoded. Every week another uh, idea, Decoded, in which you usually end with a request for feedback. Since you gave, give so much to your listeners through your manifold daily, weekly, and every so often programs, I feel it wrong not to oblige your request. So while my submission is not an anonymous question, it is an anonymous statement. For me, your class on Why is God Invisible, which I did uh, a week and a half ago, or two weeks ago, rather, is a lovely piece, an ode to the majesty of, of Hashem and His world. Your words show how blessed man is to have been created, and doubly blessed a Jew to, is, is to have been given knowledge of the divine. May we be a light unto ourselves and the nations by teaching the, wor- the words of Blake, which you quoted, to see the world in a grain of sand, and a heaven in a wildflower, whole infinity in the palm of your hand, and eternity in an hour. May Hashem bless you for blessing us with Hashem's wisdom and wisdom of Chassidus to appreciate the privilege of learning Teda and doing mitzvahs, which allow us to connect the finite to infinity. Yeshur Kayach. Thank you very much. This program, as many programs, can be found at MeaningfulLife.com, where there's a calendar of all the programs if you want to listen to it. It actually is connected somewhat to the topic, Who Created God?, why is God invisible? Why, can't, why is God not visible? So it's a, it definitely complements some of the points that we discussed here. Okay. Let me uh, do one more follow-up. Tzedakah. 
This goes back a number of weeks ago, and I wanted to read this many times, but we'll do it now finally. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, on your Sunday show, and this is probably over a month ago, you read someone's letter where he complained that he gave zdoka, but he didn't see Hashem's promise of the reward of wealth in a revealed manner. The tone of your answer was disrespectful as you dismissed the writer and accused him of having a sense of entitlement for asking Hashem to fulfill his promise. The Rebbe has told us we must say Ad Mosai every day. Until when? Every day. Until Hashem fulfills his promise to send Mashiach. Would you have the chutzpah to accuse the Rebbe of being entitled by asking Hashem to send Mashiach? Nobody would dare do that because the Rebbe was a holy man and every word he said was measured and exact and he knew what he was talking about. Is it, it is absolutely okay for us to complain to Hashem for our physical needs and our spiritual needs. And when we don't see the blessings, we absolutely have a right to complain again. That is not entitlement. It is survival. We need the physical means to survive in this world so we can do our job to make it a dira b'tachtenim, a home for the divine in this lowest of worlds. If a parent promised a yeshiva that if you educate my child, I will pay the tuition on time every month, and the yeshiva does his job properly, but the parent refuses to pay, then the administration has a right to complain. It's not a sense of entitlement to complain when someone did what they are supposed to do and didn't receive what they were promised. It's only a sense of entitlement if someone doesn't, does absolutely nothing and doesn't do his job and expects to get paid. It's not a sense of entitlement when someone did, did do their job and gave zdaka as required by the tailor, but then complains that he didn't see the promised reward. It's okay to hold Hashem accountable, just as we ask forgiveness in Yom Kippur for the mistakes we made, Hashem should also ask forgiveness from us for the times we did what the Torah requires of us but didn't see the blessings and promises made to us come to us in a revealed manner. It's a two-way street. That writer is not entitled. He did do his job to maintain a relationship with Hashem. Hashem said everyone should give, should give zdok and that person did what is required and gave zdok. So according to the law, Hashem must make him wealthy and it should be done right away with no obstacles, not just for him, for all of us. May we all have the opportunity to give extra zedakah and may we all see the blessings and rewards in a revealed manner right away. Okay, well, I think it's uh, two elements here. There are things that obviously we should demand and continue to demand. And I say amen to all your brachas and may everybody be blessed. I gave more zedakah, less zedakah with all the brachas from Hashem, for sure. But sometimes we have to have to look at ourselves. I'm not talking about being melamed on someone else. On someone else. But on ourselves, sometimes you can express yourself in a way that you feel like entitlement. Like, why did Hashem not give me the, my reward? If it's coming a sincere conversation between you and God, do that. But in general, also when we talk to each other, we need to also be mature at times. And I think you have to balance the two. So I'm not negating what you're saying, but also you have to remind, remember there are times people do speak like kinder, the Rebbe's expression, the name of the Friedrich Rebbe, like spoiled brats or spoiled children. So you have to balance the two. Okay, one final one, and then we'll conclude. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, the Rebbe once taught that two things happen in Rosh Hashanah. First, we coronate Hashem as king, and second, we make requests for our personal needs for the year. The Rebbe asked that since we need to have bittel, in order to accept Hashem as king, how then can we ask for personal requests? The Rebbe answers that our personal requests for parnasa, livelihood, good health, etc., are in order that we can serve Hashem better. With that lesson in mind, when people write to you on your podcast and ask for a bracha to win the lottery, 
lottery, please don't call them entitled. If we trust the words of the Rebbe, then obviously those asking for material wealth are asking for it so they can serve Hashem better. Perhaps they have a deep pain that they want to give a lot more tzedakah but can't afford to. Perhaps they want more money so they don't have to work as many hours and can have more time to learn Torah. Hashem's pockets are infinitely deep. Don't be cheap while giving blessings. Hashem can definitely afford it. Okay. As I said, we all want to find an everyone. But I believe if you go back to the letters that were written and I responded to, I don't think, I mean, I don't want to, I'm subjective, but I don't think I'm being over, I was overly insensitive. I don't feel defensive either. I think some letters sometimes smack from a certain element that I felt was entitlement. So I reacted to that. But at the same time, this is all coming from love and from, uh, from a source of blessings. And that's what I want to wish upon you and everyone writing. Only God revealed blessings in every possible way, all in good health for many long years. And we should be zeichet to see Mashiach already. So with this we conclude this week's My Life Chassidus Applied. Episode 425. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone be blessed. Everyone have a good Chedesh Kislev, Chedesh Kislev, Chedesh Hagu'ula. The Shluchim should give each other strength and give us all strength, and we should, and they give, and we should give them strength and give, they give us strength. In finishing the job, the Rebbe said, Mashiach is Mashiach plus 10. When a Shliach uses his 10 faculties, you add 10 to the word Shliach equals Mashiach. May it be immediately this week. Immediately, because of Mamsh. Thank you so much. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusapplied.com slash donate.